Thank you. Yeah, Jason gave me a very light topic for a Sunday morning, so I hope it's uplifting for you. You know, when I, when I talk about uh, the rise of robots or anything related to this subject, I find it's helpful at the very outset to just get out what might be in your thought bubbles when you think about robots. And it, it usually depends on your generation. So for some of you, I think this is, probably the, this is probably the picture you have in your mind of the robots that we'll live with. For others of you, my gener- you know, sort of my generation, we tend to think of guys like this, not so happy. And then if you're on the younger side, you probably think of guys like this. So you know, it can really affect your view of what these robots might look like. Now, these are all fictional robots, of course. But what's interesting is reality, in many ways, is catching up with these ideas that we have in our head of what a robot can do, what it looks like. This is, this is Atlas. And he is, uh, I don't know why I call him he, but I'm just going to use the word he here. He is uh, a robot that is, was created by Boston Dynamics. And uh, he's the latest in a series of robots they've created. And what's interesting about Atlas is in many ways he bears a lot of the characteristics of some of those fictional robots that we looked at on the screen. I thought you might actually be interested in taking a look at what it is Atlas can do. So I've got a little video clip here that I'll just play for you. He's really kind of on the leading edge of humanoid robots right now. So take a look at Atlas. Those are some of his close cousins, by the way. I find this to be pretty fascinating. Imagine yourself trying to do this. I think those are just his big feet. Just keep, just keep watching. So think about how much you would use your arms to balance in those situations. Okay, pay attention to your emotional state in this next part.
Okay, so that's, that's Atlas. I'm curious, when, uh, when the guy took the big tube and hit him in the back and he fell forward, did that seem slightly wrong to you? How many would say, like, I had a moment of, like, that doesn't seem right. Don't do that to that. How interesting is that? It's, it's a robot, and yet there's this immediate feeling of empathy that we have. Like, you shouldn't do that. That's, that's not a right thing to do. That's an interesting question when it comes to this subject that we're not going to explore today. But I, I would invite you to think about that a little bit. Why do you feel that way? So that's Atlas. And when we watch videos like that, I think... It's both fascinating and perhaps it also prompts us to have a reaction. Something like, Krista, I'm going to put you on the spot. Yesterday I showed Krista this video, my wife Krista, and her response was simply, that's freaky. <laughs> and it, it, I think if you unpack what that's freaky means, I think what it means is, that's really amazing. And if Atlas can do that stuff, what can't it do? Or in other words, at what point will there be nothing left <clears throat> for the rest of us to do if these are the kinds of things that Atlas can do? <clears throat> now, this is a very profile, high-profile issue. We've been uh, asking this question a lot lately. This week, I, without even really looking for it, I was just uh, perusing through news sites as I normally do, and I came across a number of stories related exactly to this point of whether the rise of robots is permanently reducing the amount of work available for human beings. I saw this, uh, this story came up in CNBC. Mark Cuban, Shark Tank guy. Robots will cause unemployment, and we need to prepare for it. Uh, shortly after that, actually, in, it was actually sort of in response to uh, a statement that Bill Gates made, which says we should be taxing robots. We should tax robot labor just the way that we tax human labor, because if we don't, humans won't be able to keep up. So Mark Cuban was responding in part to Bill Gates. And then New York Times earlier this week was talking about the resurgence of the Texas oil fields, but how the, the business is coming back, but the human labor isn't coming back, or at least not coming back as fast because of new technologies that are being employed. Okay. So these kinds of stories, again, I wasn't even looking for these. I just came across these in the course of my normal business. These kind of stories are all over the place. Now, what's interesting is even though they are high profile, they're actually not particularly new. So this is a New York Times headline from this week, but you can go back to New York Times headlines in 1928, and you'll see the same questions being posed. March of the Machine makes idle hands. And indeed, you can go even further back than this. Many of us have probably heard of the term uh, Luddite before, the Luddite movement of the early 19th century, where you had these skilled textile workers who were concerned about how automated looms and lace-making equipment were going to put them out of, out of business in favor of cheaper labor, actually. And so some of these workers took to smashing the machinery, destroying the machinery, burning the machinery that they thought would replace them. That's early 19th century. So these questions have been on our minds for a long time, and they've been in the popular imagination for a long time. Just this morning, as I was uh, getting ready to leave, my kids, who almost never watch TV, were watching television this morning. That was a joke. They watch TV 
uh, regularly. And, uh, and they were watching a, um, they were watching a, Dis- a short Disney film on John Henry, the folk hero John Henry. Do you know who I'm talking about? African-American folk hero who was a steel driver. And he was the guy who would help to finish the railroad. And he would drive the steel uh, nails for the railroad. And he would drive uh, drill bits through the rock to create the tunnels for the railroads. And um, the story of John Henry is that uh, he was out working on these railroads. And along came a steam drill that was going to drill these nails in place of human beings. And John Henry said, well, what about this? How about I race the steam drill and if I win, then we get to keep our jobs. And if you win, we don't. Okay, so that's sort of the story of John Henry. And he races the steam drill, and the steam drill is just going and going. And John Henry is pounding and pounding and pounding. And first they pound the, ra- the, the, the nails into, the, into the, the railroad. And then they get to the, the mountain, and they've got to drill a hole. And so John Henry, you know, he's, he's drilling through the mountain, and the steam engine's drilling through the mountain. And they get to the end, and John Henry wins. And he drops dead. He's given everything. His heart is gone, and he's, he's died. And I will tell you, okay, I was watching that this morning as I was getting ready for this talk, and when it got to that point where he's, he's on, you know, this is the cartoon, he's on his knees, and he's holding the hammer, and I went into the bathroom because I had to comb my hair, and I had tears in my eyes because I was just this, it was just this story of, of a human exerting himself and working hard and doing something noble, and he, you know, he, he, he lost to the machine. Similar to stories about Paul Bunyan racing the steam, uh, the steam saw, and he's, he's hacking his way through the trees, and he's doing it, but the steam saw is relentless and relentless, and they get to the end, and they, they compare the cord of wood, and the steam engine is just slightly higher than Paul Bunyan's, and so he walks off into the horizon with his axe. This is, this is what fills our imagination on these issues. There is something good about work, and there's something that draws us to the idea of human hands doing work. And so that's why it's hard to think through these questions of what, is it, what happens when a machine does the work that humans do. Now, I will say, despite what some of those stories suggest, historically, we've been able to adapt to this pretty well. So if you look at, this is just a snapshot of 1948 to the present. And what it's showing you is the percentage of people employed as our, the total employment as a percentage of the total population. So if you take our whole population, what percentage of people who could work are working? And what you see, even with the march of machinery, the march of robots, the march of technology in the 20th century, more and more people have been able to enter the labor force, even as the population's growing, to work. We've adapted pretty well to changing technology. John Henry and Paul Bunyan may have lost their jobs, but their ancestors found new jobs. And what's interesting is if you look at sort of the mix of the jobs that we do. So you can see the nature of the work we do has changed pretty significantly. Manufacturing work has declined at the same time that service sector work has increased. So even as technology has marched, humans have been able to find new work to do. Different work, but new work. The question today is, the reason it gets all the headlines today is, have we hit a turning point in that trend? In other words, is this time different? So you can see 
Again, if you go back to this graph of the total employment as a percentage of the population, it's kind of chugging up and up and up and up and up. It dips significantly during the Great Recession, okay? And it started to recover. But the question is, where does it go from there? Given things like Atlas, given what computer technology can do today, does that trend line continue to move back up? Or does it not? Does it stagnate? So what I want to do today is talk a little bit about where this trend line goes, what some of the arguments are suggesting that it doesn't continue to rise. In fact, it flattens out or even goes down. And what some of the arguments are for why we think that trend line might move back up again. But that's the question. We don't know where it's going. We know where it's been. We know how we've adapted in the past. We don't know where it's going. So let me start with the what I'll call the pessimist case. The case for this line moving flat or moving down. Okay. Historically, when we've looked at the movement of technology into the marketplace and how it's disrupted jobs, it's typically disrupted the kinds of jobs that are, uh, would be characterized, or you could call it sort of routine manual labor. Okay, so I, I don't know why a jackhammer came to mind when I was laying in bed one, late one night in New York City, very near Wall Street. I'm not sure why a jackhammer came to mind, but a jackhammer came to mind. I'm curious, anybody know when the jackhammer was first invented? Want to guess when the jackhammer was first invented? I was surprised by this. The 1920s. That's a long time ago. Yeah. It was in use a long time by the 1920s. Yeah, this is interesting. Anyone want to guess? Huh? What did he say? I don't know. I don't know what the Romans. Um, not quite that far back, Brian, but that's good. So we're somewhere in between the Romans and the 1920s. It was actually... Okay, so I found this interesting. It was the late 1840s. The late 1840s. And, um, and there were... Uh, well, you, and you can imagine this with, with the railroads uh, and wanting to... You know, doing exactly what John Henry was supposed to do, drill his way through these rocks, through these mountains... Uh, it, it became very difficult when you got into a, um, you know, if you're quarrying or you're mining, excavating, when you start to get into the rock, it becomes impossible actually to have a fire in order to get the steam power to use, uh, you know, to be able to drill something because they were using steam drills at that point. And so um, uh, somebody came up with the pneumatic drill, which uh, pumped the air through. And so you didn't have to have the steam fire right there and you could actually drill through this rock. So it was the late 1840s that we came up with this technology. Now, that clearly put people out of work who were trying to pound through rock with pickaxes, okay? Now, you may think the sound of a jackhammer on my street at midnight is really, really annoying. Okay? But that sound is actually fairly contained. Imagine if you didn't have jackhammers. The constant, incessant tink, 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 tink of pickaxes trying to get through what these things get through. Okay? So we've definitely thrown labor out of work with something like a jackhammer, but it's interesting to think about the trade-offs there. Another machine that you're probably very familiar with is the ATM. 
Okay, we don't think of this, I mean, I typically don't think about this as, as a, you know, a machine that's risen to move humans out of work, but indeed, that's the case. But again, if you think about it, this is, this is what a teller would do, at least in this function, is, is a routine uh, example of manual labor. Taking a deposit, giving a withdrawal, machines can do that more cheaply, more quickly, and more accurately than human beings can. So this is the kind of, when we think about robots replacing labor, we typically think of things like jackhammers and ATMs. And we've believed that non-routine kinds of work, more creative or more cognitive kinds of work, were actually immune from this trend. Um, but that's not necessarily the case. So at the King's College, one of the things that we, <clears throat> I teach at the King's College, one of the things we pride ourselves on at King's is we put all of our students through fairly rigorous set of writing classes. Because we believe that if students can write well, they will have a competitive advantage in the marketplace. And I think that's true. <clears throat> but maybe a little bit less true than it used to be. Let me show you, uh, there's an article. This is uh, an article that recaps a basketball game between the University of Louisville and North Carolina. I'll just read it to you. The page basket capped off a 13-point comeback for the Tar Heels who trailed 63-50 to after a Blackshear three-pointer with 8.43 left in the game. UNC finished the game on a 22-8 run to secure the victory. After a basket by Bryce Johnson gave North Carolina a 70-69 to lead with 39 seconds left, Rozier responded with a hoop to give Louisville a one-point advantage with 26 seconds remaining. That article was written by an algorithm. That was not written by a human being. It was written by a computer program. No human assistance. So the black box actually explains how the program went about writing this article. So the software scours through its trove of data looking for insights, facts that it can figure out from the data. Like a human journalist, it's trying to answer the questions, who won, by how much, and why. That's why. Here, here it has understood the concept of a comeback and has recognized that it's exciting for the reader that the points were scored with only a few seconds left on the clock. Now, this isn't Pulitzer Prize winning writing, but it's not that bad. I mean, it's pretty interesting. Go on to the, look at the second, uh, second part of the article. Look at some of the language here. The streaky second half followed a back and forth first 20 minutes that featured four lead changes and five ties, including at 34 points entering the half. Kennedy Meeks led a balanced North Carolina attack with 13 points. Bryce Johnson, 11. J.P. Toccato, 10. And Page were also double-digit scores for the heels. Justin Jackson chipped in with eight points, four assists, and a season-high three blocks. So, again, look at the black box here. To make the article sound natural, it has to know the lingo. Each type of story from finance, so you see a lot of finance articles like this as well, the sport has its own vocabulary and style. It also has to match the house rules of the news organization. So uh, an article written for the AP would be different for one written for Forbes. And both the AP and Forbes use, this is called Wordsmith. The, the technology here is called Wordsmith. Both of those organizations use this technology to write articles. So learning how to write, being able to write well is good, but computers know how to do that pretty well as well. Another high skill uh, profession, the law. So uh, part of the pre-trial process 
uh, is this discovery process where the two sides to the trial will share evidence and they'll comb through this evidence to figure out what the other side is going to present. Okay? And it's a very time-consuming, very costly process of going through tons and tons and tons of data, a process that in the past was handled by paralegals or law clerks. Well, e-discovery software, so software has radically changed how that can happen. E-discovery software can, can go through that process of discovery much, much, much more quickly, much more cheaply. You don't need any space to put people. You don't need to pay people a salary. You don't need to deal with their benefits. You don't need to manage them. You don't need to recruit them. You don't need to fire them if things go badly. Software doesn't require any of that. Okay, so you've got this high-skilled profession like the law, and you've got software that can rad radically change how that work is done. Okay, so th those are just two examples of moving beyond sort of this um, routine manual work to more, can I take questions at the end, Lou? Uh, I'll, take, I'll go questions at the end, thanks. Uh, to this non-routine, more cognitive type work. This is research from, uh, commissioned by McKinsey, the consulting firm that uh, suggests that currently demonstrated technologies could automate 45% of the activities people are paid to perform today. It's a pretty big chunk. I thought, he's not in the room now, I wish Jason was still in the room because I thought this next piece was maybe even more interesting. So this is kind of on the whole what McKinsey finds when they look at current technologies. Some other researchers broke it down by profession, the likelihood that a profession might be now, so a number close to one would suggest it's 100% likely that this will be automated. Uh, Jason appears to be quite safe. Clergy are <laughs> unlikely to be automated anytime soon. You can see that up here. Um, but it is interesting to look at this list. He's got a lot better chance of keeping his job than I do, apparently, according to this list. Um, but look at, like, you know, you think about accountants or um, real estate sales agents. I mean, you know, now this is, this is just an assessment based on the, the researcher's understanding of technology and trends. So it's not, you know, gospel. It's just a, it's just a projection. But it's, it's in line with other projections we see when it comes to these kinds of jobs. It's not just digging through rock that machines might be able to replace. So now, so some of you might be saying, okay, well, look, I'm not, I'm not, um, a man, I don't work in a manual labor type role, and I'm not even, I'm not an accountant, you know, I don't work in one of these clerical type roles uh, that are on this sheet here. I'm an artist. I am creative, and that's the nature of my work, and I am definitely not concerned about machines replacing me. Well, you might want to think about it a little bit. Uh, a couple years ago, the London Symphony Orchestra performed a piece that was composed entirely by a cluster of computers at the University of Malaga in Spain. And it actually got pretty decent reviews. That was a couple years ago. More recently, there is a uh, computer science professor from Yale who has created a program called Kulita. And Kulita is also a music composition program but it's had much more success with discerning audiences. So discerning audiences, people who study this sort of thing, have listened to the music that Kulita has composed and have said, 
I would not have been able to tell you, in fact, they haven't been able to tell you that that music was composed by a computer program relative to a human being. In fact, I'll, I'll play you just a little clip. I, I brought like a 20-second clip of, this is, so this is a, a piece of a composition that Kulita put together in seconds. Okay, now how long it would take a human to, to compose this, I don't know, hours, days, weeks maybe. This is a matter of a couple seconds. But listen, you can be the judge. You decide what you think. So I, I, I don't have a very discerning ear. Maybe that's complete garbage, but I, 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 don't, I don't think it is. And it, <clears throat> and it was seconds, computer program, that pulled that together. So uh, if music is your thing, you might have some uh, new players in that space with you before too long. Maybe cooking is your thing. Maybe it's the culinary arts for you. Maybe, uh, some of you may have heard of the, uh, um, the uh, Watson computer that IBM, <clears throat> this artificial intelligence computer that IBM uh, has been working on for several years and, uh, in fact, not that long ago was able to defeat the top Jeopardy players in the world. Uh, Ken Jennings there, uh, it was uh, kind of considered to be the top Jeopardy player in the world. Watson beat him handily several years ago. And in fact, uh, Ken Jennings in his last, maybe some of you know this, in his last answer to the last question, um, he wrote his answer, then parentheses he wrote, I for one welcome our computer overlords. So, he, <laughs> so in acknowledging his defeat, he basically said, this guy, this Watson is good. So Watson beats, uh, Watson beats Ken Jennings in Jeopardy. But Watson, it turns out, is also a really good, um, I, I want to say, He's a kind of a chef, I guess. He, he takes uh, analysis of, uh, of chemical pairings and is able to actually create recipes out of, his out of his analysis of chemical pairings and actually just recently published a cookbook. So if you want to buy, uh, if you want to know what Watson has come up with in terms of, uh, of new tasty treats, you can actually buy Watson's cookbook. There are uh, professors at Dartmouth University who right now are collaborating with uh, people from across the country working on ways that computers uh, and computer programs can compose short stories and sonnets and even DJ sets. So there's all sorts of work happening in this space that we thought was once reserved entirely for human beings. So I don't know if there's anybody who's completely immune from this trend. 
Okay, so I look at this stuff as, as a sort of a non-technologist, but just somebody interested in what's happening with work, and I say, this is both fascinating and it's scary. And the reason people tend to think it's scary is because we see a potential risk, and that is a risk of a, of a divided society with the division line running between very skilled workers who can interact with these kinds of technologies, who can own them, who can create them, who can service them, and a larger group of lower skilled people who cannot work with these kinds of technologies. And we see an income divide developing between those two groups, and therefore we see the possibility of social unrest of upheaval because of that divide that can't seem to be bridged. That's the concern that people have. And I would just say, you know, in the interest of time, I think that that concern is very valid. And I think we ought to take it very seriously. But I also want to say, I think it's way easier to tell the pessimistic story with technology than the optimistic story. I could give you a hundred other examples besides the one that I showed you here of why the robots are coming and they're going to take your job. It's fairly easy to tell that story because every piece of the story involves something you already understand or you have seen to some degree or another. You, you see the job that used to be, you see somebody out of it, and you see the technology that's replaced it. You can, your understanding of your present reality is enough to understand the threat from machines. Do you see that? That's all you need. The optimistic story is way harder to tell because fundamentally it depends on you imagining something that you can't imagine. It requires you to project into the future and see something that you can't see and believe that that something is the answer to the march of the machines. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Let me see if I can um, go back 100 years and tell somebody 100 years ago that her great-granddaughter will work in, uh, will be a cybersecurity specialist. Imagine going back 100 years and trying to tell somebody, you will speak the same language much of the world you inhabit will be understandable to both you and this uh, great-grandmother. But if you try to explain to her that her great-granddaughter is going... Well, first of all, that her great-granddaughter is going to work is going to be almost inexplicable for her. Okay, that's another subject. But that she will work in cybersecurity, you can't do it. There is no way for you to help her understand that reality. Do you see that? What's important for us to remember is we are in exactly the same spot as that great-grandmother now. We cannot see, probably even less so than she could, we cannot see 100 years into the future and figure out what's going to exist in that 100-year future. Now, there is something, just by comparison, um, there is something that that <clears throat> great-grandmother probably would understand, a scenario she would understand. And I find this to be... Uh, this this story to me is so funny but also so instructive. So in the late 19th century, uh, if you asked sort of somebody who was in the urban planning space or, or sort of a social critic intellectual, you know, what are you most concerned about when it comes to cities, cities like New York City? One of the things they would tell you, I mean, we have documented evidence of this, quite a bit of it, they would say, we're very concerned 
that cities like New York City, within a period of about 50 years, will be buried under nine feet of horse manure. Maybe you've heard this before. Okay? If you think about it, and it, makes, it actually makes a ton of sense when you think about it. In New York City in 1900, there were 100,000 horses producing 2.5 million pounds of manure every day, all of which had to be disposed of. And New York was getting richer at a really quick rate. So people were getting richer, which means they wanted more horses. You get richer, you have horses to do things with. Okay? So the concern was if New York keeps growing, people will keep acquiring horses, they'll produce more manure, and we can't possibly deal with that much manure in this city. And so there were questions about, do we have to restrict you know, the population of New York City to deal with this? Do we have to restrict the horses that people can own in order to deal with this? These were the questions of the day. <clears throat> but it turns out they didn't have to do any of those things. They didn't have to restrict horses. This is, by the way, is, oh, there's your cybersecurity. There's your horses. There's your, those are, that's an ambulance. That's how you get, you know, you got a problem. It probably goes faster than our ambulances in the city today because of overcrowding. There's your ambulance. But the question is, do you have to restrict the number of people? Do you have to restrict the number of horses? How are you going to deal with the manure? And the answer was, you don't have to. Because what the urban planners and the social critics couldn't see, even though we were right on the cusp of it, was that. And that, that thing which is new and completely outside of the constraints that the leading thinkers of the day felt that we were under, that thing broke those constraints and completely changed the problem. They couldn't see it. Okay? So what, what I want to suggest is the pessimistic case for technology uh, is, is a lot like horse manure. You can see it. It's there in front of you, and it stinks. Okay? The optimistic case is trying to tell somebody who's concerned about that problem that don't worry, that thing is going to come along, and it's going to completely obviate the problem. That's, that's very, very hard to do. Technology on the optimistic side, on the beneficial side, when it comes to the workforce, tends to work in very uh, below-the-radar and gradual ways. Okay? So earlier I told you about ATM machines. ATM machines replace these tellers, replaces people who work in bank branches. Uh, and indeed, that's true. So if you look at from the late uh, 1980s until today, the number of people who work in a bank branch has decreased from about 20 on average to about 13. Okay? So we've seen a decrease in the number of people who work in bank branches. ATMs are part of that. But what's interesting is this. Because ATMs made operating a bank branch so much cheaper, the number of bank branches multiplied significantly, especially in urban areas. The number of bank branches over the same period of time increased by 43%. So there are fewer people working in bank branches, but there are actually more people overall, uh, sorry, there are fewer people working in any given bank branch, but there are more people working in bank branches overall because the number has increased, because the cost has been driven down. Now, they're not doing the same work. They're doing more sales work. And they're doing more customer service work. They're not doing the giving and taking of withdrawals and deposits. Even in the legal profession, I told you earlier that uh, the e-discovery process has replaced a lot of the work that clerks and paralegals do. That's true. 
But again, it's changed the dynamic in the industry. What's happened is as the discovery process has gotten cheaper, judges are more likely to allow it to happen in any given case, which means discovery is happening more frequently. And so actually between 2000 and 2013, even as e-discovery software moved into the space, the number of law clerks increased by an average of 1.1% every single year. More people working in that profession because of what technology's done. Now, what I want to say is that's not always the case. Okay? So uh, even in, if in some cases the march of technology actually creates more demand for labor in that space, that won't always happen. If the rise of robots doesn't mean the end of work, it's going to be because we find jobs in new spaces. New fields are going to be created. That's where the work's going to come from. But I want you to see that the effects of this are more subtle and perhaps more interesting than we sometimes give it credit for. Okay. So, um, how do we prepare for this? We've got just a few minutes left. Let me, let me move to how do we deal with this. What do we do about this? How do we think about this going forward? Okay. Well, what I want to suggest is we've actually been in this situation before. We've seen this play out before. In 1900, in the year 1900, of all the people who are of an age to graduate from high schools, or at the appropriate age to graduate from high school, only 6.4% actually did. Okay, all the people who are eligible to graduate from high school at that point, only 6.4% actually graduated from high school. And if you look at that and you think about what happened in the 20th century, uh, you, get this, you, you, you discover this very interesting conclusion, this very interesting insight. Tyler Cowen puts it, uh, Tyler Cowen, the economist from George Mason University, puts it this way. He says, early in the 20th century, a lot of potential geniuses didn't get much education. They were literally kept down on the farm. Taking a smart, motivated person out of an isolated environment will bring big productivity gains. Okay, so his point is the 20th century started with a lot of people on farms. They weren't going to be there much longer, but they were fairly uneducated or undereducated given the demands of a 20th century economy. We were able to create in this country an education system that took those kids from the farm and moved them into the positions that technology were making a higher te technology was making a higher priority. Okay? That was a massive success. And if you think about it, you had a 20th century economy that was uh, fairly based on a fairly hierarchical industrial or factory model. And we were able to create an education system that in many ways mimicked that model and therefore could prepare students for the jobs in that kind of economy. That's what we were able to do. Massively successful. You take farm kids and you turn them into accountants and lawyers and engineers and machine operators and clerks. We were able to do that. So the question for us today, I think, and this is a question I'll sort of leave you with, is where's the farm today? The farm was the farm in 1900. But what's the farm today? Where in society, society do we have a massive population relative to our current economy who are, who are undereducated or uneducated and have the possibility to grow in their skills and to grow in their capacity? Where do they exist? 
And then what kind of education system do we need to have that prepares them for the economy that we live with today? Okay, how do we equip them for non-routine, uh, cognitive, relational, manual type works? Okay, work that requires more creativity, that maybe requires uh, more relational intelligence. How, how do you prepare people for that? What's the system that allows that to happen? And I would just suggest that I think it probably means a fairly, a fairly radical departure from how we think about education today. If we're going to help people prepare for this economy, it probably means some pretty big changes. Okay. So the bottom line is this isn't going to be easy. It never is. It's never easy to transition when technology change, changes fundamentally the labor landscape. The case for pessimism is always going to be more powerful. You'll, the things, if you remember anything from this talk, you remember the stuff that scares you. You will. It's easy. You can imagine it. You don't have to work hard. You just see it. You can feel it. It's all sensible to you. The case for optimism is always going to be harder because I'm asking you to believe that something's going to happen that you can't even imagine. I can look back and say, it's happened before. And you can say, how do you know it's going to happen this time? I can say, I don't know if I know. Except this. Here's my, here's my other hopeful note that I'll end on. I think, I think the gospel gives us a reason for optimism here. Just work is part of God's fullness for his creation. It's there in paradise, and it's permanent. Okay? And it's not going anywhere. So the question is, the question isn't, will we have something to do? The question is, how will we go about discovering what it is we're called to do? And I think that's something God's been calling us to from the very beginning. Even in Genesis, the way he sets things up is such that he, he gives us creativity and says, go out and find ways to serve one another. And I think he's calling us to the same thing today. Use your creativity to find ways to serve others and to enable others to find ways to serve others. So the gospel gives us reason for hope, but also reason to work very hard and to think very critically. And if you don't want to take my word for it, that's fine. But uh, maybe you'll take the words uh, that my computer came up with. You're going to be okay. He says so. Thanks, guys. That's all I've got.